Welcome to the Future of Stuff podcast, conversations on the technological and social transformation of material culture, presented by Materium. I'm your host, Garrison Breckenridge. All music is courtesy of Zoe Keating. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking to financial cryptographer Ian Grigg. Ian is an unsung hero in the blockchain cryptocurrency space, having built crypto-based digital asset systems since the 90s, using the Riccardi contract, a design framework for binding software with legal agreements that has been the foundation of many crypto projects over the years, including Materium. We discussed the invention of the Riccardi framework, its design philosophy, the importance of community and the formation of one's identity, and the success of entire crypto networks, as well as the critical need to shift our focus from building zero-sum games to crafting positive-sum systems that benefit everyone at the expense of no one. I learned a lot from Ian in this conversation, and I hope you find the insight as enriching as I did. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Good to be here. A lot of people who are kind of familiar with what Materium does and how it approaches building things may be familiar with the concept of the Ricardian contract as this kind of hybrid system for integrating contractual agreements with software that executes the agreement. And that's kind of foundational to what we do. It's also been used in a lot of different projects and inspired a lot of amazing work across smart contracts and formation of entire digital organizations. Could you kind of describe how the Ricardian contract was formulated? It all happened around about 95 to 97. What was happening there was that digital cash was a hot topic, uh, a very hot topic. And it's kind of funny because when the Bitcoin thing started out and that became a hot topic, it was just an echo of the 90s to a lot of us who were, had already been there done that and so forth, seeing, seeing what would happen. While, while the digital cash people over in Amsterdam, that's DigiCash, the David Chalk's company, were doing digital cash, I was sitting in finance classes and learning about zero coupon bonds. And a zero coupon bond is basically like a dollar note, if you like, or a pound note or something like that. And listening to all this, I realized that actually, if, if you're trying to do digital cash and digital cash is a dollar or a pound or a euro or whatever it was. And a zero coupon bond is is the same thing. And the zero coupon coupon bond is actually the atomic element of finance in terms of mathematical modeling. From that, you can build up everything else, practically speaking. You can build up derivatives as constructions of zero coupon bonds. And it occurred to me that, well, if we can do digital cash, we can do everything in finance. This, you know, light bulb moment got me thinking, and I started out with a mate and I moved to Amsterdam and we started working on digital cash and digital assets. The ones we chose were bonds. And to cut a long story short, the thing about bonds, I did a lot of research into this. It took me six months to figure this all out. Bonds are legal contracts. If we could do a legal contract in a digital form, then we could do bonds. And it then tra a bit later on, it transpired that Bonds themselves are just the simplest form of financial instruments, and most other things are based on the contractual mechanism. Most of them. I mean, shares are based on government, say uh, so, but even then, shares can be based on contracts. So we could do everything if we could do contracts. And I went through a long process of trying to work out how to do contracts. I got stuck on the normal computer science notion, oh gosh, a contract is a bunch of data, so we shove it in a database. and. We, we get stuck into normalized forms and all this sort of stuff, which is normally good stuff. And the world often 
reduces to that in computer science terms, which is why so many databases are built out there in the world. But the contract just didn't work. Uh, I discovered that bonds, for example, they were lots and lots of words which had very strange meanings, especially to a computer scientist. The bonds didn't have standard words. And every time somebody came out with a new bond, they changed the wording. And it was often just a little bit. So you wondered whether they were responding to new events, there'd been some new crisis, or, or whether it was just the lawyers deciding that they needed to generate fees or something. But either way, it didn't really matter to us. The bonds kept changing. So databases just didn't work. And at that point, I had this second light bulb moment, if you like, when I said, okay, why don't we flip the problem upside down, give the lawyers what they want, give them a text document, and we'll make the computer science side work harder than try and pander to the computer programmers. We'll pander to the lawyers. So we constructed, or I constructed a a simple text document, which included the text of the contract. And instead of it being, shall we say, all the words that the legal people wanted to write write and nothing more, it included some parameters in there. And these parameters were very simple line-based things, which said something like name equals 2009 bond from the Pacific Railway. And the denomination could be in dollars and and so forth. Simple tag equals value. And what that meant was that the program could dive into the document with a very simple parser. We're talking about a line-based thing, which can be knocked up by any decent programmer. Read down, grab out the tags, and then with that document, the software could then display it to the user. So the software didn't need to be didn't need to know what the contract was beforehand. It got all the information it needed out of the contract, such as the denomination, such as the decimalization, the symbol to display. And then when it came to showing the user what was going on, it could simply use those tags without necessarily understanding, which if if you think about it, that's what you want. If you're going to be handling many, many bonds, you don't want to know what the bonds are at the bands. You don't want to to modify the software for every bond or every asset or every Bitcoin or every Ethereum or whatever, you want a standardized document that tells you what it is. So out of that process, we, we added routing to find out where the, the actual asset was, was managed. And we added uh, digital signatures such that the issuer would make this claim as a contract. And that was the method. The funny thing is we didn't realize that what I'd come up with was much of an invention, but we found every time we were talking about it, we were saying, well, the way you issue a bond is you write a contract. It's the contract form that's inside Ricardo, the name of our, our digital cash system. And that got shortened to the Ricardo contract, hence the name. So eventually after, oh gosh, six or seven years of having these conversations, I realized, or I, I had to basically publish a paper on it and, and did that. So from then, of course, everybody could just refer to the paper. So. But that's the foundation of it. it. It's quite interesting because we did discover it was it was very broad. We could do every sort of financial asset with the Ricardian contract. And not only that, other people came along and did other things with it. Chris Odom turned it into configuration files. The configuration of his software was a set of Ricardian contracts. Oh, interesting. The, the open bazaar people turned it into a trading cycle. 
in that their, their invoices, for example, would be a Ricardian contract. And that would refer back to a previous offer to, to enter into a contract. And then the receipt, for example, would be pointing back to the invoice and the payment would be pointing back to the receipt. So they have these chains of things where they're basically pointing at each other. And that was very interesting because it created this cycle where everything was available and everything was documented in cryptographic security, which, which allowed a lot of software to work pretty much perfectly. And it removed the problems that are caused by insufficient information. So yeah, it, it, it was interesting. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting kind of design space. A paper you wrote, the, the intersection of Ricardian and smart contracts, you had this kind of X and Y axis of where the, the Y axis, I believe was like semantic richness. So it's more mm -hmm. leaning into the natural language kind of agreement, what we traditionally think of as a contract document. And then on the X axis, you have operational richness, which is basically mm -hmm. what's actually executable by code. And I think that's a great kind of mapping of how to map things that w are working in this kind of legal tech space. Yeah. And it can vary from, you know, asset to asset, from use case to use case. There's so many possibilities there. So when Bitcoin and smart contract platforms like Ethereum emerged, you know, with Bitcoin, you had, I guess you could say like the first digital cash system that kind of persevered and kind of survived and kept going and yes. withstood regulatory friction and a lot of forces of nature kind of working against it. And then you had Ethereum that emerged six years later or a handful of years later, and it kind of delivered on this, on this promise of the smart contract, which Nick Sabo proposed in like 1994. So when these you know, cryptocurrencies and smart contract platforms emerged, what, what was your initial like response to them in, in relation to this digital cash system that, that you had actually created? Mm, yeah. Well, I was in the cryptography group when Satoshi published, uh, discussed and eventually published his paper. And I read the paper at the time that I didn't like it. And the key thing was it was a very clever invention, obviously. And I, I, I realized that at the time, but this notion of having a competition for consensus meant immediately to me, people are going to be burning energy on this thing. Yeah. And that seemed to me to be an un unsustainable expense, but actually the author was, was clearly a lot cleverer than I was and hadn't managed to constrain it such that it, it didn't completely get out of control. It was a stability fault based on the price, which we didn't really see until prices actually started to move from zero upwards. But then there was a stability in the system based on the number of people who were trading these things, which, which was very clever. Um, and obviously a massive breakthrough. What was the big issue there was because considering that I had come from the, the client server world, we had all been thinking the client server was the only way to do it. But what we had entirely missed was that the server was always a weakness and we had been somewhat blinded by our, if you like, our bias towards client server. So whenever one of these systems failed, we hadn't treated it as a server failure. So for example, I was involved in the eGold community. I built a thing called DigiGold. You could consider it to be eGold version two or something like that, which we got up and going. But it got into trouble through the actions of the people involved. 
um, to put it short, in short terms, I, Douglas Jackson, the Eagle founder, got into court battles and so forth and so on. And because I was the guy who's running Digigol, uh, Digi he was the guy running Eagle. These things didn't survive because the founders behind these systems got into destructing arguments. And it wasn't clear that the problem there was the architectural problem there was that there was a founder, there was an owner, there was a, a contractor party, there was somebody managing the servers. The inspiration of this, uh, of Satoshi, was yeah, that's the problem. The people behind the servers or the people behind the center are the problem, not the solution. So let's figure out a way to remove that. And, and that was the big, uh, you like the, the huge breakthrough that changed everything. And was there kind of a moment where there was like Bitcoin or Ethereum that you thought that finally there's like the infrastructure that we needed to do the things that, that you had envisioned, or was it just oh. another tool that kind of just emerged and. No, I'm, I, I think it's just another tool that emerged. Obviously, it did a lot better than that we could do. There was a moment where I decided that actually this thing had passed the test of time and was here to stay. And that was when a, a fund in America paid me to go and be their, their dark horse, their anti-Bitcoiner. Through that process where I sat in front of 20 or 30 potential investors into their fund, and I argued against Bitcoin and so forth. And when I saw what was happening there, I thought, okay, this is interesting. Regardless of what I think technically, we're now at the point where enough people will believe in this thing such that it will sustain. And it's clearly sustained itself on, on the past. So well, I, I kind of flipped at that one, realized, well, this thing here is here to stay. Not that I'd ever got over my, if you like, my distaste of the proof of work and consensus load cost and so forth. So I, actually I was very, uh, very happy to join the, the block one crowd and work on depots, delegated proof of stake, because that is a system that gets rid of the expensive proof of work mechanism, albeit it brings in its own problems. So if you like the proof of work thing gives you open access and open entry, and therefore it is a, in theory, it's a fair mechanism, whereas delegated proof of stake encourages the problem of cartelization amongst the block producers, which eventually causes problems, unless you're very careful to, to keep that down. There's swings and roundabouts, there's pluses and minuses with all these systems. So you have to be very careful about what it is you're trying to do before you choose one of these mechanisms. Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of bring it back to Materium, it, it would be fun to kind of explore like initial conversations you had with the Vinay when he was like conceptualizing Materium and thinking about it. Could you kind of unpack what was part of those conversations, those initial conversations? To be frank, we didn't have that many conversations on it. Vinay's always been very, very solid about saying that basically he's just building on the Ricardi contract and the governance techniques that I did in the nineties. There's a thing called five parties model, which I put together in the nineties, wasn't so much an invention as take classical governance techniques and, and you know, lay them out and just slot them into the digital world. This is what we did at eGold and Gold Money and the various other players. And it's what they should be doing with the stablecoin issues, for example, and also ICOs and so forth. But they haven't learned this yet. These things were all avail available to Vinay. And I think he, he mostly did his own study on it. He really came back to me and said, what about this? What about that? He just seemed to drink it up. So uh, it, it's unusual to find somebody who, who can actually 
break this stuff up just by reading the documentation. Yeah. I remember like when, you know, he was telling me the kind of origin story, if you will, how he was basically like screaming into the void <laughs> at the rest of the people in crypto that we have to get the, the legals right in order to actually properly integrate the system with the real world. If you want this world changing potential of a blockchain, you have to be able to connect these two realms in an effective way. And most people would just completely ignored him. So that eventually he, <laughs> uh, founded, a, a company that was you know, aiming to do just that. Yeah. Well, and it, it's, it's interesting because I, I face the same dilemma. We, we issued gold in, uh, around about 2000, the DigiGold thing, but we issued physical gold in 2002, thereabouts. We had a, a kilogram bar, which was our reserves. The custodian was designated as a person. The mint was designated as a person. Todd Boyle, the, the accountant, was in fact part of that circle of uh, governance. And we we got the whole thing completely right and issued it and so forth. But it, it was interesting because some people appreciated that, but the vast majority of people didn't really appreciate what we'd done. It was as if most people would look to other people for validation. And therefore you had this, this wide open space for scams. All you had to do is generate the sense of validation in some sense or other. And everybody would pile in because somebody had validated it to them and they'd be validated by some, somebody else and it eventually becomes a set. But to do it properly is actually a bit of work. It took us a month to set up the governance just the governance or the, uh, the gold bar, for example, in terms of agreements and contracts and understanding, getting everybody on board for the parts that they play. It's quite easy to fall into the trap of saying, yeah, let's ignore all that stuff, throw it out there and see what happens. And of course, people start throwing you money. And that somebody once said to me, or somebody frequently said when, when there was, if you like, opposition to his ideas. He kept saying, people keep sending me money and therefore I know what I'm doing. And he was right until he wasn't right. And it all came crashing down. And, and that's where you need those better mechanisms. Uh, so if you're in it for the long run, yeah, you need to do all this stuff. And, and actually that's a really good way of figuring out whether something's a fraud or not. Well, something is going to be undermined or fail or not. It doesn't necessarily have to be a fraud. Do they do the governance? And the governance is fairly simple. It's all standard. It's all documented. You just follow these steps. Did they do it or did they not? But nobody seems to want to get into that because it's not sexy. It's not tech. It's not Yeah, it's, it's very human. Yes. It's not this magical consensus thing, this proof of work Nimus keys and all that sort of stuff. One of the, one of the projects that Materium is working on currently is launching a gold backed NFTs, mm -hmm. which is kind of like just the, you know, recent iteration of the kind of gold digitization that e-gold did and digi-gold. And it is true. It's a lot of work to deal with all the, all the humans or wet code that's mm -hmm. kind of necessarily involved to do the right governance. And when you're, when you're dealing with physical you know, objects and stuff like that. If we can do that process well enough and perhaps streamline it over time, it opens up many use cases in terms of like mm. what kind of assets 
can be created or managed or opening ac access to, you know, certain assets. So if we can get the governance right around digital assets or digital assets that are, you know, tethered to physical objects, then it would open up a lot of doors for us, like just yes. as a society in terms of managing commerce and production and consumption. But, you know, there's a lot of tough work <laughs> that you have to do in order to kind of get to that future. There's a lot of things that you've worked on that I've been very fascinated about, whether it's governance, governance of like entire blockchain networks, like with the design of EOS, for example, or integrating crypto with like existing social structures, which I find really fascinating with like Chama Peso. You've explored a lot of the different kind of use cases of these technologies, drawing upon like the foundational work and thinking that you did around the Ricardian contract. Like what, what excites you these days? What actually stands out to you? Work I do these days is still the, the old Chama Pesa project. It's working slowly because I'm having to code it up myself. Uh, I guess I should say a little bit about that. The notion that you can come together as small groups and you can decide to commit as a group to do savings together is something that can be done completely disconnected from the financial system. So you've you actually created, if you like, your own answer to financial inclusion, because what you've done is you've, you've excluded the financial system from yourselves. The financial system was already excluding you from, from their participation. So you have to start again, but it only works not as an individual system and not as a large community, but as a small group, it only works because what you can do is you can choose the members of the group to start from a very high trust level even in a totally corrupt environment, enough people very close by, and you can select from them who is trustworthy and bring those together as a very small, tight, trustworthy group. And on top of that, you can do all sorts of things because uh, we're trying to do savings in these groups. That means we're handling each other's money and therefore we're very dependent on each other. And what, once we get that level of trust, it's possible to do a lot of things. We can interact with other groups. We can do supply chain. We can do organizations of payments. For example, we don't need to worry too much about who the other party is. As long as we know which group it is, we can rely on the group to look after its members. We can do things like identity. There's a lot of things that we can do. So consequently, my, my work these days is trying to build a platform, which works with those groups and allows them to, if you like, utilize their capabilities in better ways, in more powerful ways. As I say, it's slow work because I'm doing it all myself. I love that concept of like focusing on smaller groups and then scaling mm. from there. That's just natural to how people organize and cooperate with one another. Something I, I'm like that I pay a lot of attention to, uh, is, uh, projects both within crypto and outside of crypto that are kind of founded in more like principles of cooperation and interdependence rather than absolute independence, assuming that everyone is working in their own selfish interests. I don't really buy into that framework so much, but I really like that idea of scaling up from existing social structures and trust relationships because you could apply that to social savings groups. Uh, in Africa, but also in other parts of the world, uh, you know, cooperatives throughout the world, the context could vary from just the community to 
art co-ops or studios and stuff like that. I, I really like that kind of approach to things because a lot of people try to have this monolithic solution. We cook up some solution in Silicon Valley and then we try to export it to, you know, other parts of the world and different cultures. And it's like, that doesn't work out. That doesn't work out at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it's interesting. You say that it's natural. It's actually, yeah. More than, more than being natural, it's who we are, because if, if you look into it and try and figure out where all this came from, it, it traces back to basic anthropology and society in the sense that if you start, for example, with the child or the baby that's born on day zero, they're basically a tabula rasa, an empty slate, blank slate. And there's nothing in there except the ability to cry and suckle, basically. But if you shift forward 20 years or so, you've now got a working functioning adult with all the sophistication that is needed to do complex trades, to engage in negotiations, to date with a person and start a family of her own. So how did this happen? Well, actually it turns out the answer is very much in groups. It starts out with the mother, of course, bringing the baby up. But pretty soon on, the father turns up and upsets the very cozy arrangement that the baby had with the mother. So the baby now needs to learn how to deal with the father, which creates a, a sense of identity. And then they've got siblings and uncles and aunts and grandmothers and so forth. So actually the, the child is brought up in the context of a group. And therefore, when it comes time to leave the nest, when the child is booted out because She's now an adult and she's got to go make her own way. She carries with her this, this, shall we say, groupness, this sense of identity inside a group. So naturally she's quite happy to form another group or to participate in a group or to find a group. And, and the reason we don't really treasure this, we in fact avoid it in, if you like, academic discussion is because of the Western tradition for the last 500 years or so of individualism and capitalism. We treasure the notion of individualism, capitalism, super, and you're going out to fight in the market and become a millionaire by the time you're 50 or whatever it is. These things are inculcated as the way we work in the world, but it's not the way we work in the world. The way we work in the world is inside groups. So the whole Western economy, if you like, has this dichotomy where we've got this theoretical notion of individualism fighting with our natural sense of community groups. Whereas if you go outside the Western world, they don't have the dichotomy. They're much more oriented to the notion of, yes, we are naturally in our groups. We have groups, we work with groups, we have extended families, we have uh, community groups, we have this, we have that, that's how we do things. So they don't have that, if you like, collision of uh, ideas. It all comes down to, you know, yeah, people's framings of identity. But crypto is in, in large part, although it's, it's certainly changed over the years, tends to be a little more very capitalist driven, libertarian, rugged individualism. It's kind of lacking in the kind of interdependence and kind of cooperative principles that you find in you know, a little more in other cultures, or at least mm. it's more prominent or, or foundational. 
to other cultures. I love your, your, your example of how an identity is formed. Cause there's like a, what was it? I don't know if I'm saying that right concept of like, I am because we are. Yes. Um, indeed. Is, is that yes. what it is or am I misquoting that? that that's <laughs> exactly what it is. Yes. 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 I am because we are, I am the person that my community defines myself, defines me as, uh, I am the person that everybody around me who I hold close will say that I am. And my position in the community is my, my future, if you like. I'm not an individual. I'm a member of a community. The, the paradigm for a while, at least in the blockchain space has been assuming that the network in question has some sort of protocol token that the more of that said token that you have, the more power you have, or that kind of defines your presence within that ecosystem. Whereas like there's a other design approach where it's like, okay, well, identity is more about connections between people and your history. So like, how do we, how, how do we build that and kind of operationalize that? And you're yes. starting to see people kind of talk about this more often lately, like the past year or two about like on-chain reputation or kind of being able to aggregate your on-chain activity in a way to kind of prove that, oh, you've contributed to this or you contributed to, to that. It's a little more meritocratic rather than kind mm -hmm. of this identity along the edges that we're talking about, but it's, you're starting to kind of see that shift the core principles. Yeah. People have been talking about reputation since the beginning of computer time. It was a topic in the nineties and every year or two, somebody would come up with this new concept of putting reputation onto the internet. It never works. It never works. And the reason is the reputation is a very broad group wise thing whereby in my head, there's something about you. And in your head, there's something about me. It, it's almost by definition, not quite by definition, but almost by definition, you can't reduce it to a number. You can't reduce it to a database entry. I mean, they do these things with credit scores and so forth, but obviously that's such an approximation it misses out the richness uh, of what's going on. And so consequently, I think, you know, anybody who's talking about a, a reputation first hasn't understood the problem at all. And they will waste a lot of time. It, it turns out the reputation, if you like, comes from groups, comes from identity, comes from trust and so forth and so on. So you have to talk about those things first. And once you've got those things sorted out, reputation not only falls out very simply, it's not particularly important. What's important is what you've built. You can see all this in uh, the world of, for example, ICOs, token sales, and so forth. People looking at the number, the amount of tokens, and they're saying, well, this is the power, this is the, the goal, this is why we're here. But actually the numbers are just the outcome. And if you go back and you look at the process of, say, successful token sales, uh, you've got this situation where some of the ICOs um, are fluff. There's nothing in them. And then others of the ICOs are actually really good projects and really good people and so forth. But one of the ICOs might make more money than the other, or graves, or capital, or, or sell more tokens, or whatever it is. And it's not necessarily correlated to how good the project is in a technical sense. You could look at two white papers and say, this one's good, this one's bad. But the bad one makes more token sales than the good one. What it's really correlated to is the strength of the network that the founders bring to the table. 
So if you look at, for example, the EOS thing, which I had a lot to do with, it sold tokens to something like $4.1 billion or whatever the published number was. I, I don't know what the, the real number was. I believe but it was it the did... largest of its kind. Like it, it's to, to this day, it's the largest. By an order of magnitude. Yes. Uh, the only one that came close was the Telegram one, but that had to be wound back because they got in trouble with the SEC. Anyway, the, the reason that happened was because of the strength of the network. And that network was a broad group of people who were already operating the BitShares network and the Steemit network. So there were already thousands of people across the world who were interested in, shall we say, Dan Laravel's next venture. That whole network moved in to purchase the EOS tokens, making it very large. So yeah, the notion of relationships and networks is, is more or less ignored by the technical community, but it is the key. And there's a potential, uh, you know, risk there as well, because Indeed. like, if you have, if you have a, a powerful existing network that carries over, especially if it follows like a particular builder or founder, you do run the risk of cartelization because they're like, oh, well, we, mm. we can put the stakes down, claim our territory right out the gate and it can cause more centralization cartelization moving forward. That idea of the network, the kind of social ecosystem that surrounds the project is kind of what lends to, to its success. It seems interesting that there's this tendency to completely ignore this kind of, like what we've been talking about, this kind of more social community driven interdependent uh, aspect of things, which is natural to us as you know human beings, but there's this tendency to think of it as, oh, it's just a, a flaw that needs to be fixed with some new system, mm. some new application. So it can be kind of difficult to kind of like steer the blockchain community to like kind of thinking more along these kind of lines of interdependence rather than just everything is competition mm. over cooperation and stuff like that. Mm. That's just differences in philosophy, I guess. Well, it's, it's differences in economic models, if you like. The, oh, yeah, those true, yeah. people who are focused on uh, the pure mechanics of a smart contract and the zero-sum game and the notion that we can do these things without having to trust our counterparties, missing the fact that actually, even if you do these things, there is going to be a large proportion of people who aren't trustworthy coming into game the system. So you're going to end up with, if you like, a very adversarial community, which is fine if you get it perfectly right. And your use case just needs that. But the vast majority of use cases do need some form of trust. They need some form of positive engagement such that you can actually do things together. For example, just the issue of not being able to hack the smart contract is an issue of community in the sense that the hacker is part of your community. Now, what is incentivizing the hacker to not hack? We know what's incentivizing the hacker to hack. That's getting all the value and stealing. But how would you incentivize that person not to hack? And without thinking about that, you're, you're basically creating, if you like, a, a very technocratic foundation. We've yeah. been doing software since, since 1943 or thereabouts. And what we have discovered is that software always has a terrible amount of bugs. A yeah. huge number of bugs. So when we go forward and say, we've got this wonderful machine, the smart contract, 
Bert can be written to do a perfect zero-sub game such that everybody's happy. Well, that's total bullshit. <laughs> we just don't know how to write good software, either as a discipline or a profession or, or whatever. It's just not on the table. So we're, we're fooling ourselves. We're representing something that we have never really mastered. There, there is an exception, and that is the spacecraft software, software to run spacecraft, like the space shuttle and so forth. But even there, they've had quite a few disasters based oh, yeah. on programmers. So yeah, we just can't prove this. So we are living in a world where we're of uh, cognitive distance, where we believe two separate things, that software can create this perfect zero-sum game. But we know we can't do anything with software. One of the things I kind of hope for is kind of shift from the zero-sum thinking to positive-sum thinking, mm -hmm. like yes. creating systems that by design are intended to encourage positive-sum games or outcomes, because it's just, it's just better. <laughs> It's, I think it's better if everyone that's interacting within a system, they all benefit in some way. And it seems like it's just a design approach, but there's a lot of core philosophies that kind of drive or influence how people think about things, much less actually build them or implement them. Mm. For your example of the spacecraft or even airplanes, that, that software that has, in the event of a failure, it's catastrophic. There's mm. a sense of like, kind of like lives at risk. There's a, there's a weight to it. You really see people thinking of smart contract development or building dis, you know, decentralized finance protocols, thinking necessarily with that same kind of weight of like responsibility or like what they're trying to build. It's very much kind of experimental because ultimately even the so-called, you know, mature DeFi protocol that people think of as like established or still experiments that are like three years old at the most I've seen, seen you on Twitter emphasize strongly how like the contract, the thinking of the contract behind these digital assets is still lacking. Do you have any thoughts on like how to like convince people who operate in this kind of like digital prime thinking where it's all very technical kind of focus in the digital realm to adopt kind of more like the physical prime thinking where like, oh, actually the kind of agreements between people, like actual people are really important to building these things. I have done some recent thinking on this because it's pretty obvious that people haven't gone in that direction you know, other than exceptions like Ethereum, so forth. The, the vast majority of the market, we're talking 99% or so, has just skipped past that, had lots of fun issuing tokens, NFTs, yeah. of course, the recent craze. So what's going on here? It's relatively easy to convince lawyers. Because lawyers, of course, their meat and drink is contracts to almost an exclusionary approach. They can't even think outside that the realm of a contract. So they're quite happy with the concept, but lawyers don't program. So they can talk and talk and talk about this. And also lawyers aren't entrepreneurs. They don't act. They respond. So their way of thinking is, oh, there's a dispute That's coming. A point. I need, I need to defend. Yeah. And even if you ask them to write a contract, they're writing in the future, as if there's a defense needed, there's a dispute. So they're already caught in their mental state. They're responding to an attack. Whereas your entrepreneur acts into the void and creates something in the void. So the lawyers are particularly helpful in this respect. So the other 
community, if you like, that's interested in this is the developers. And I've had a look at the, the whole the development process and I've actually come up with a, a recent thought and that is, okay, how do we make it easier for the developers to do this? Well, one thing is we need the tool to write the contract. Another issue is what's the tool to share the contract? And if you think about, for example, Google Docs, it's a great tool for sharing documents, but it's a lousy tool for exporting. You can't actually get access to it easily, except by exporting it as a PDF, for example, and that's a useless form. You can imagine trying to teach lawyers to use uh, Google Docs, but they look at it blankly and say, well, hold on, where's Microsoft Word? I can't see it. So you've got this huge difficulty and the same happens with programmers. But there is a tool where programmers do share documents and that's Git. So what I've done is I've dived into Git and specifically GitHub, the commercial company, and started modeling the Ricardian contract in GitHub as a GitHub hosted document in Markdown format. Now that's a document that is accessible and it's shareable by the developers. So they can contribute to it by means of pull requests and they can come to a consensus over what's the right version. And it can be exported from because GitHub posts all these different URLs you can use to get access to the document. So I'm now actually reconfiguring all of my software to do GitHub Markdown as the format. I used to use the old Microsoft Any format from, from you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And that gave us good service. We have, if you like, a non-technical, a cooperative requirement. And I'm experimenting with the notion that if we use GitHub, we can show the software and the contract being built up at the same time and therefore attract more developers to the process. And once we get enough developers doing it, there's going to be this sense whereby, okay, Gosh, there's these developers over here that are using the contract. And then there's the majority of the market, which just don't know, don't care, don't want to. But if you compare them, the amount of information available in the Ricardi contract is orders of magnitude better because it's tied to the NFT. It is the NFT. It is the contract. And we can hold that person to account and say, this is the contract you issued, right? you sold me an NFT or a photo with these rights, the right to hang it on my wall. Okay. Where's the picture? When can I hang it on my wall? And you can state that with absolute certainty because it's written in the contract. And once you get that, what you do is you will cause this, if you like this bifurcation, this forking in the market, such that there's the people who are doing it properly, the contracts, and then there's the rest. And then right. it will start to spread because once you have this very solid difference, like Materium is trying to generate now, you know, the Materium gold bar is a gold bar and it's on the net and it can be purchased and it can be traded. And that works because it's based on contracts. Once you get that, enough people know that you'll start to, if you like, export the, the proper way of doing things. The kind of trends that are going on right now, both social trends and technological trends, where do you see smart contracts five, 10 years from now. So I've long predicted that the smart contracts really won't come into their own until they're incorporated with the, the legal documentation. 
And there are a few people that have gone in that direction. So, for example, EOS put in the elements of smart contracts and uh, material, of course, is, is doing it with its NFTs and so forth. But just getting that element together, you also need the governance. And the governance is a lot of work. It's a lot of costs. Getting that right is, is something where somebody's basically got to invest in doing it right up front to show that over the long run, this thing works because we got the governance up and going in the beginning. And that we sustained that governance through the lean years to the point where, well, it's starting to generate some return for both the customers and for the investors or owners of the system. So I think we're still in the phase where we're building enough of the building blocks to the point where we can set up, if you like, a, a foundation, enough foundation, so we can start building the use cases. Until we've got a smorgasbord of governance techniques to choose from and a smorgasbord of contractual mechanisms or, and, and different contracts and a smorgasbord of accounting systems and then a smorgasbord of, shall we say, smart contract coding and so forth. Until we've got that all nicely laid out such that we just pick one of each of them put it together and we create our foundation, we are going to be stimmied in building a lot of complicated apps. So it, it's still a building phase. And I see that Materian, for example, but there are others doing this as well, doing the brave work of investing up front into the insert future, because if it can get this right, it will create that cornerstone that couples in with the other cornerstones, which makes the foundation work. Somebody's got to do that. Unfortunately, we hit the hodl problem in that it's far easier to sit there and rely on other people to do the good work and just basically pretend we're innovative, but really the only innovation we've got is bringing more people into the hodl circle, uh, yeah. which locks up so much of the capital and makes it very hard, for example, to, to create reality, to create a substance. It's good that people like Materian, people like Benin, self are, are pushing forward on this because that's where the value is going to come from. And that's where the real value is going to come from, building these building blocks and getting it up and going. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. From what I gather, it is a very expensive <laughs> and time-intensive process to kind of get these governance issues right. But it, it's even just important just to give it due consideration before you just jump into some new venture. A lot of you know, kind of budding entrepreneurs in the blockchain space, it's really easy to kind of get carried away by the hype and the the potential and the narrative. The kind of lasting impact mm -hmm. will be in kind of just staying the course and thinking very long-term instead yes. of short-term potential or gains and stuff like that. I think there's more maturity, more maturing going on in the development space. And people's imaginations are just broader in terms of use cases. So like you get different types of thinkers and builders involved with the technology. So I think that would be hopefully great for all of us and building better systems, better financial systems and new ways of cooperating. So we're com coming up on an hour into the session here. We, we covered some of the, the work you're currently doing and thinking you're doing. Is there anything else you'd like to plug before we round things up? So one of the things that I've done is I looked at a problem that Materium had, which was how to do a solid custodial arrangement for some of these physical things. They had the bare bones there, 
but what they needed was something a little bit more, if you like, scalable and professional and so forth. And I just happened to be working with a company called Hover, which is a specialist in the field of setting up custodial arrangements for physical items. And I was able to introduce Hover and Materium together. I'm, I'm related to both companies, so it was a very easy introduction to make, but of course, I also end up being unable to participate in the discussion except to, to jolly things along a bit because I'm in a conflict of interest. Um, but that's fine. So Hover is, is a company that is explicitly setting out to create uh, a good custodial arrangement for these assets. And therefore, what it does is it solves one of the problems for material, which is great. How they do it, I'm, I'm not going to mention because at the moment they're still in their, shall we say, their first or their, their seed round and they need to get some money and build their MP, which is going to happen. And then we'll start, we'll be able to talk about how they, how they've actually done this. But it's, it's been good because uh, together we've found that missing piece which allows the full materium puzzle to be solved. At least that's the piece that I've been advised was missing. So now we, now it's not missing. So that's good. It's, it's interesting because if you look at the, the whole arrangement to do this properly, not only do you need the smart contract, the coding, not only do you need the legal document, but you also need people to hold assets and you need a dispute resolution. You need these different components, which all get put together as, uh, as a, a sort of Lego building. And until you've got them all there, it's not going to last in the long run. It's, it's going to be one of these flash in the pants, things that scream up and get into trouble and spring down again. It puts a lot of pressure to kind of generate a lot of intellectual and financial capital in the very early days of like kind of conceiving of this and having to kind of stay the course to make sure you get it right. Cause if you, if you don't get it right, then there's a lot of legal systems and software systems start becoming detached from each other and it can be a, be a messy, <laughs> uh, mess yes, to clean it up. gets messy, which creates costs, which drags everything down. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, where can people, uh, follow you and your work? These days I tend to use Twitter, uh, but, but that's just rambling on topics of the day. ENG underscore FC is the handle. I, I have a blog called financialcryptography.org. And that, that was a long-standing blog for over a decade, but I don't post much on there. In fact, I don't post anything on there anymore because it's broken. I haven't got the wherewithal or the patience to go in and fix it. One thing that is happening is that the entire identity cycle has been turned into a book and that book is coming out barely in the next few months. And that describes, oh, if you amazing. like, the Chama Hesse journey and the relationship of social groups to identity and so forth. It's a long book in terms of an internet read, a hundred or 200 pages. But unfortunately, to actually explain why this is so, I had to go very deep and, and trace through things like the anthropology of the child's upbringing and so forth. Therefore, the, the description is quite long-winded. But without that, it's too many jumps and too many leaps of faith. It took me six years to get it all written down. So consequently, it's a long read, if you like, which is not, not usual in today's terms. But anyway, the, the book will be coming out at some point and, and hopefully that will be amusing to, to some people. Oh yeah, that's fantastic. I, I've read a lot of your writing on like identity and not just the required contract side of things, but also just digital identity and you're thinking behind that. It'd be great to have it all kind of both compiled and expanded with the connective tissue of that 
concept. And actually, I would love to have you on the, the podcast again to kind of dig, really dig into the identity thing. We touched upon it in this conversation, which I, I'm really glad we did, but it'd be great to kind of focus on that, get a more mm. kind of overarching view, dive deeper into that particular subject. Sure. Well, when the book comes out, I guess I'll be happy to talk if, if you drifted into the book and actually got some questions out of it, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. And for listeners, I highly recommend going to it's eng.org, right? Uh, that you have some of your papers and. Yeah, it's just my stuff, really. It's just a stuff site. It's, it's not pushing any particular concept. I, I've got a section for this, a section for that and collect everything there. So it's, it's more like a CUV or as you may than, than a website, but. A lot of the topics we covered, a lot of the papers that kind of articulated these ideas are in there. I highly rec recommend if users are interested in like Ricardian contract or thinking about like digital identity and the kind of frameworks for building financial cryptography systems, definitely check it out. But there's a lot that I think people could get out of it. Yes. And the other one is financialcryptography.org, although there's, there's nothing new there, but there are something like 1500 posts over the last decade or so. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show, Ian. Uh, a lot of the work you do is like something that I've, you know, paid attention to for three, four years now. So it was great to kind of, you know, dive in and get your perspective on things. Good to hear. I mean, the point of writing it all down is so other people can take from it and maybe learn a bit, but also maybe build on it and do something bigger. But it's encouraging to see Materium basically do that, grab some papers. And, and race with them, try and build the future.